In one of those famous scenes in A Christmas Carol, former business partner Jacob Marley warns Ebenezer Scrooge, I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and a hope of escaping my fate, a chance and a hope of my procuring Ebenezer. <laughs> and in that events that occur that evening, Ebenezer is given the beauty of Christmas and the meaning of life, that which he is squandering away. Through the visit of three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Well, thankfully, I'm not here to present you with three ghosts this morning. But I am here this morning, as I hope to set out, to show you the beauty of Christmas by going back to the beginning of time and showing you the Lord's work in the past and in the present and a little glimpse of what is yet to come. It's part of our study this Christmas season as we're looking at Christ. Last week we looked at Christ before time, the pre-incarnate one, and this morning we want to look at Christ in history. The task is rather ambitious, and I'm glad that we have all day, but we'll try to keep it within the time slot. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we are so grateful that once again, this time of year, we reflect on the amazing gift you have lavished on us, an undeserved gift, a very costly gift, embodied in one called Jesus of Nazareth, your son, the God-man. And Father, this morning, I pray that you would kind of clear the webs of cobwebs a little bit, allow us to focus on your word for these few minutes together, allow your word to speak to our hearts, to exhort, and but also to encourage, because as we journey through this little lesson in biblical theology, we stand in awe of a God who is intimately involved in our lives and has orchestrated thousands of years to bring us to this little town called Bethlehem. We thank you. In the name of the one we celebrate, Jesus, we pray, amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. That is Galatians chapter four, starting in verse four. I know some of you have said, well, where is First Peter? We'll get back to First Peter. But we're in Galatians today as we, again, continue this journey in what we call Christology, the study of Christ. Galatians 4. Now, let me set the scene for you. This is the first letter that Paul will write. It's the oldest of the Pauline epistles in the New Testament. He's writing to a group of churches in Galatia, which is modern Turkey. And this letter is being written to defend his apostleship and his message because it's under great attack. Paul's minister to this region after he left a group of what we call Judaizers, that is that these is, this is a group who took the gospel message and then tried to incorporate it with the Mosaic law and said, well, if you truly wanna be in God's favor, if you truly wanna be a follower after the Lord, you not only have to believe Christ, but you must do X, Y, and Z. And Paul said, absolutely not. <laughs> no way. We don't earn God's favor. The law, in fact, as we see in the Old Testament, and Paul's going to argue, it's restrained, it's revealed, and it even provokes sin. 
The law never saved, so why would you go back to it? In fact, what the law showed us is that we needed a savior. And so he comes to chapter four, verse four, and he makes a very profound statement as where we're gonna camp out today. In Galatians chapter four, verse four, he says, but when the appropriate time had come. I mean, we are time-sensitive people, aren't we? Time-oriented. It's nine months, then the baby. The Amazon package, well, it should have been in 23 minutes. I don't know, all right? We, we, we have these timetables we operate on, and Paul is saying, in the fullness of time, here we are. And the question is, what is the, the fullness of time? And, and I'm gonna argue this morning, that is all the way back to the first book of the Bible. That is in Genesis In other words, this fullness of time transpired all the way back, this culmination that we've been longing for. So you need to turn to Genesis. Keep your finger in Galatians. Turn to Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. We see the creation of the world. We see the creation of Adam and Eve. And there's intimacy that they have with God in the Garden of Eden. And as you know, there is sin that creeps in through the influence of Satan, but certainly by choices made by our forefathers, Adam and Eve. And that intimacy is broken. For the first time, there's fear of God in an unhealthy sense. There's a recognition that, wait a minute, I'm not holy. I'm unclean. And all of that occurs is now a pronouncement of judgment. It's the first time the word curse appears in the Bible. And the Lord pulls out a paddle and he is going to spank hard. He starts with the serpent because as Adam blames the woman, the woman blames, Eve blames the serpent. This one in which I would argue Satan embodies. In verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle and all the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman, now watch this, and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Paul takes us, and he says the fullness of time it, this, this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In this passage, we're not talking about how awful snakes are. And most of us in the room who are sane understand snakes are evil. They're yucky. Uh, yes. But that's not what he's talking about here in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we're talking about hostility between humanity and the demonic forces that seek to undo And Genesis is laying out a promise with fundamental truths that is going to shape all of history and brings us to Galatians' text. Look at the the pronouncement there in Genesis 3. Look what we see here. It says, first in Genesis 3, we we find a a promise of one to come, a Messiah. He, it states, this offspring, this seed, will crush the head of the serpent. Throughout history of Judaism and the early church, Genesis 3.15 has been called the Proto-Evangelicum. It is the first gospel. It is the first messianic prophecy. 
Back in Genesis, God, in the midst of his judgment upon humanity, upon the serpent, there's undertow of a promise, a promise of one who is to come, and, and that fits. <clears throat> and so I would argue the offspring here of the woman in Genesis 3 should be seen as singular. Now, there are scholars who are going to disagree, say, no, it's more collective. Some want to punt and say it's both. But the problem is the grammar in the syntax, I would argue, seems to strongly suggest we're looking for one individual, one who will come, who, who, will, who will bring redemption. Now, go back to, Genesis, or back to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 says, but when the appropriate time has come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. And because you're sons and daughters, you could place both there. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, who calls Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're also an heir through God. God sent a son. It's the promise all the way back to Genesis that there will be one who comes, this seed, this offspring. And it fits with the whole narrative of Genesis. Genesis is looking for a redeemer. And if you think of Genesis 49, Judah, remember his descendant will be one who holds a scepter, a ruler's staff, and will receive tribute and obedience from the people. Later Jewish writings understood the Targums, for instance, understood that Genesis 3 was referring to a Mashua, a Messiah who would come and rescue his people. Calvin, John Calvin talked about this passage as a promise of victory over the devil to mankind. It unites us around Christ as our divine head. So Genesis 3 promises that there is one who's coming it also tells us that the promised one will crush Satan, the evil forces. It's an individual who's going to engage the snake. There'll be combat and he will win. In other words, sin, which has stripped humanity from the garden and has removed us. We'll show this chart later. You can, you're showing my, my secrets. We'll get to that in a minute. So I'll, I'll get there in a second. Thank you. This is the joy of, I have a clicker, yes. Sin has stripped humanity from the garden and has provided intimacy with God. The relationship has been broken. And so humanity has found themselves enslaved to sin and under the power of Satan, the serpent. And so in the midst of the suffering and the sorrows, the hopes and joys of the human race are directly linked with this one who will come and who will bring victory. One scholar writes of Genesis 3, we have here the sum of the whole matter. The rest of the Bible does but explain the nature of the struggle between the serpent and the offspring, the seed. The persons who wage war and the manner and consequences of the victory. In the struggle, man is finally to prevail, but not unscathed. Remember, it says it'll strike the heel. His triumph is to be gained not by mere human strength, but by the coming of one who is the woman's seed, that who has found the deliverer who the scriptures speak of. Leave out these words, this fellow states, and all the inspired teachings which follow should be an ever-widening river without a fountainhead. 
Paul, in writing to those churches in Galatia, say, listen, in the fullness of time, it's been brought forth a son. This is the promise all the way back in Genesis that we've looked to. This one that we have seen. And notice in Genesis, it says the seed is of the man, which you would expect. No, the seed is of the woman. <laughs> Pink states here, we have the first announcement concerning the supernatural birth of the Savior. It's her seed, not the man's. Literally fulfilled, you might state, is a virgin shall give forth a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Galatians 4, God sent forth his son. And so, this storyline, this fullness of time, where did it start? It started at the beginning of time. It started back here in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3, you see these promises. You see the promise, again, of one who's going to come. One who's going to crush and slay evil and where I would argue the text is clear, it is a unique one, one that comes from the woman. You say, well, that's pretty significant. Yes. And that promise that is made is then woven through Scripture. You turn the tapestry over of the Old Testament, and you're going to see this threads coming through. For instance, let me give you a couple texts just to look at. would be Genesis 12. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Remember this? Father Abraham had many sons. Right? He makes a promise. And the promise that he makes to him is that your seed will be the solution. We see it already. The seed that he, he said in, back in Genesis is going to cur- undo the curse. In, in Genesis 12, the seed of Abraham is going to be a blessing. Listen to Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And on it goes. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It takes the curse and throws it upside down. How can that happen? Because ultimately, who's the descendant of Abraham? Look at the genealogies found in the Gospels. Both Matthew and Luke, who highlight Jesus' ancestry, take us right to Abraham. Ultimately, it's Abraham's seed that we find the Messiah and the promise. But it just doesn't end there. Again, you turn the tapestry over, you see the thread that comes through Genesis, going through uh, Genesis 3, Genesis 12. We then get to David in 2 Samuel. And listen to the covenant God makes with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you an offspring. There it is. And he shall come from your, and he will establish a kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him like a father, and he shall be to me like a son. The promise of the seed, the offspring, takes us all the way back to Genesis. And again, it's woven through the scriptures. Interestingly, Psalm 110, which is a psalm, it's often referred to as a messianic psalm. It it looks to David as the Messiah, and the Lord speaks to David. In Psalm 110, the Lord says, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, until you crush them. Later in the psalm, it is stated. Many scholars see the connection between Psalm 110, and you got it. Genesis 3. They're, they're huge. 
I will put your enemy under there. Your offspring will crush them. You will undo the curse. It's, it's all seen there. There's lexical connections. There's literary connections. And what's interesting with Psalm 110 is not only is the author depicting God himself as specifically applying Genesis 3 to Psalm 110, but it's God who's speaking and it's applying it to himself. In other words, the Lord himself is going to personally reverse the enmity and death that was brought upon by the fall. And this is what you see happening here. In other words, the purpose of God, how he deals with this curse, is presenting his son who reigns in fullness. One theologian says it's a cosmic triumph in the very design and intent of God. You say, well, I don't know about the Hophetids. Well, we can go to the New Testament. Jesus uses Psalm 110 and refers to my Lord, not as a reference to David, but someone far greater. That is to himself, the Messiah. Psalm 110 is the most frequently referred to psalm in all of the New Testament. They're drawing these threads. And when Paul gets to Galatians, he says, the fullness has come. God sent a son. This is what we've waited for. This is the offspring. Again, taking us all the way back to Genesis. Now, we can look at this chart, if you don't mind showing that again. So sorry, uh, showing my, stealing my thunder. Uh, but you see the fall of humanity. That's Genesis 3. You see the curse, the death, and the slavery. The law, in this diagram, it, it shouldn't show as yellow. Um, <clears throat> it's faint, and that's because it cannot save. The law only showed us we needed a Savior. It's pointing to what Paul writes in Galatians, the rescue of humanity, which is Christ. We have now life, not death, and we don't have a slavery. We have a son. So the promised seed, all the way back in Genesis, we see it coming to fruition through Christ. And I gave you two examples of an Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. Now there's a test over this to this evening, so be prepared. No, I'm teasing. But I hope that diagram helps because what you're seeing is this enormous influence that's being brought through, rooted all the way back to Genesis. Thank you for showing that chart. So now, go back to Galatians. You just had a crash course in biblical theology. Hope it was helpful. You know, you study something like this, and I don't know about you, but I'm going, no committee put this together. <laughs> there, there wasn't a group who, who thought, you know, we'll just kind of write a few writings and hope we connect. Just, if this doesn't make you go, wow, what a great God we have. I don't know what does. As you see the unfolding of God throughout history. In fact, there are several implications we'll get to in a minute. But let's get to, back to the Galatians 4. And so God sent his son, which speaks of his pre-incarnate state, by the way. Born of a woman. And again, here it is, the offspring. Hebrews 2. God shared our, Christ shared our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. That's Hebrews 2. It, it's, it's taking Genesis 3 and, and seeing the fulfillment. It's turning it back upside down the way God had intended. The phrase emphasizes here being born of a woman, Jesus' humanity and his representative quality. And we looked at Philippians 2 last week, which highlights this as well. But Paul says he's born of a woman. Notice he also says he's born under the law. Oh, don't miss this. 
That's so significant. First of all, it's significant because he's dealing with a group who want to bring the law back into the gospel. And he says, no, 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 you cannot do that. Jesus is subject to the law being born among the Jewish people. And unlike other human beings, he fulfills it. He keeps it perfectly. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Why? Because it's looking for a Messiah. I think I mentioned this before. You, you kind of imagine the, the law is like a rosebud and now it is in full bloom. And that is Christ. The law could never save. The law existed to expose sin, highlight our imperfections, point us to the need for righteousness that cannot be found in ourselves. Christ came to do all that. But he also became the curse of the law, did he not, for us? He took on what we should have taken on. In Galatians 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law and its connection with righteousness to everyone who believes. So, what are the implications of all of this? What does this mean for us living in 2022? Well, first of all, we mustn't miss the effects of sin upon the globe. It was enormous. There was no human solution. We see that back in Genesis. We see it time and time again throughout history. There's no human rescue. There's no human alternative. It took the Lord himself to intervene. He hinted to that all the way back in Genesis. You see it in Abraham's oath, the oath made to Abraham. You see it with David, Psalm 110. And it clearly you see it here. It's God who has to intervene. Second thing we see is Satan is alive and well. <laughs> he has brought death and destruction since the beginning of time and we are engaged in a cosmic battle. Paul else writes elsewhere, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against something far greater. There's a theological adversary. It's interesting. Evil is seen in par excellence in Genesis 3. But righteousness is seen in par excellence with the Messiah. Psalm 110, for instance. It's no wonder when Jesus is born, Satan moves through King Herod to do what? Destroy the child? It's the promised one. We gotta get rid of this. This will upset the, the, the basket. This will just undo everything I've tried to see not happen. And so time and time again, Satan has sought to undo God's plan. And time and time again, God has seen fit to carry out his plan. Satan brought death and destruction. The God-man brings life. He brings reversal of the curse. 1 Corinthians 15, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive. And finally, the implication is again, the sovereignty of God. He keeps his promises. The fullness of time. The events weren't random. It weren't by chance that we just happened to get to Bethlehem and Mary's giving birth to someone called Jesus. No, no, no. God was orchestrating the events C.S. Lewis states, history is a story written by the finger of God. 
And that is exactly what we see. Paul's not done. He mentions that God sent forth his son and born of the law. And then he gives us two reasons why. First, to redeem those who are under the law. Those who are enslaved. Those who understand they cannot be perfect. Those who cannot be seen as righteous. Christ came to redeem. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5, if you've accepted Jesus as your savior, his righteousness has been reckoned to your account. When God looks at you, those of you who follow Jesus, you are seen as righteous. Wow. All because the fullness of time has come. And secondly, the text tells us it's not only to redeem, but it says so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. We've been called to freedom by the Father a special time only known by the Father who would carry this out. And not to convolute some things here, but the Exodus overtones are huge. Leviticus 26 says, I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of your slavery, and I broke the bars of your yoke, and I led you to confidence. Later in Hosea, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and I brought him out of Egypt as a son Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. We stand therefore and do not again submit to the yoke of slavery. Under the law, he redeemed us so that we're no longer enslaved. We brought into a new exodus, so to speak. What Moses did for the Israelites, Christ has done for us on a far greater scale. We're no longer under this. And we have, better yet, we can even be called, again, we can call God our Father. And that's what he highlights in this next verse. God sent his son. We see that in verse 4. Now we see in verse 6, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. The Holy Spirit, which allows us to call God the Father, Abba. This is a transliteration in the Greek of the Aramaic. It's what a small child or how a small child would refer to their daddy. (laughs) That's what that relationship is similar to. Nestled in the arms of our heavenly father. The intimacy that was lost back in Genesis 3 has been brought to fruition through Christ. It it, it speaks of intimacy. It, It speaks of trust. And we are heirs of this. And so we're no longer a slave again in verse 7. But we are a son. We are an heir to these things. And I love verse 7. Because in verse 6, it's sons. It's plural. In verse 7, it's singular son. Which hones in on the individual relationship we have with God Almighty. Because of Christ. All of this is made possible because God brought to fruition what he promised all the way back in Genesis 3. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem and to adopt. <laughs> so, what do we do with this? What, let me give you three points there in your notes for this Christmas season. First of all, when you look at that nativity set that's set there on the end table in your home, Hopefully the wise men are way far away since they don't come till later. And you're, you're looking at your nativity set. 
You say, God superintends. God is the sovereign one who is intimately involved in orchestrating events for his glory. And think about the Old Testament, the sovereignty of God in the lives of people. It's seen time and time again. Noah builds a boat. There's never been rain. What? <laughs> Are you nuts? He protects his family and the animal kingdom. And God uses that. Moses, his training in Egypt. Coincidence? No. The 40 years of tending sheep? No. The Lord was honing his skills, equipping him and shaping him the task of leading his people out of slavery. Joseph and the encounter with the fellow inmates. You remember the baker, the cup bearer and the candlestick maker? Oh wait, he wasn't there. Uh, just the baker and the cup bearer. You remember? They, they, because Joseph was faithful in engaging them later, it's what brings Joseph to second person in power and it saves God's people, his offspring in plural form, bringing them to safety. Or what about the Moabite, that widow who lost her husband, all seemed lost, or even her mother lost her husband. And Ruth goes to, to Israel, a place that's not her home, with bitter bunny mother-in-law, and God uses that, and she serves as the grandmother Ruth does to David, and she's listed in the genealogy of our Savior. Nehemiah, faithfully serving as a cupbearer in the Persian court. I'm sure he's thinking, what am I doing here? And God uses that, as we looked at when we studied Nehemiah, to bring Nehemiah to Jerusalem to restore the reputation of the Lord by rebuilding the walls. Timothy, it was, you know, here he is, a devout mother and grandmother who's training him in the Hebrew scriptures. Because of that, he was well-grounded and ready to receive the gospel and that theological grounding that he had was used mightily in the early church. When we're overcome with fear, worry, or doubt, look to Bethlehem. Look to the fulfillment of the promise the Lord made at the beginning of time. All the way back in Genesis, the script was written. Thousands of years, countless generations, and we get to some 13, 14-year-old lady in the hills of Nazareth who's been told, you're going to give birth to a son. <sighs> but God, but God, in his sovereignty, knowing that we have an invincible sovereign God, we find ourselves face-to-face -face with the reality of hope and peace. God's sovereignty gives meaning to suffering, purpose for living, and genuine assurance of the future. The promise made back in Genesis, the ultimate fulfillment is yet to come. Christ will return. He will reign on earth. And during that time frame, we will see the curse reversed even more so because in Hebrews 11, it states, children will even lay down with the snakes. <laughs> when our Christ reigns as king. And Satan then will ultimately be completely crushed. Christmas serves not only as a reminder that our God superintends, but our God cares. Think about our loving father sending his son, and we have the opportunity to be called his children. 
Again, Genesis is, 3 is detailing God's judgment. But even in the midst of that wrath, we see God's grace. I love the third verse of Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Kevin Van Hooser, theologian, writes, This gospel anticipates a world far different from C.S. Lewis' Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. The promise of the gospel is that it is always Christmas to be in Christ is enjoy every morning as a Christmas morning with the family of God, celebrating the gift of God around the tree of life. Hmm. The God of the universe went to such great lengths in order that you, me, could call him Abba, Daddy. <laughs> wow. The fourth verse of Joy to the World. No wonder, I, no wonder he gets to the fourth verse. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And wonders of his love. <laughs> if you don't understand the, the bigger picture of what is occurring in Bethlehem, you've missed the boat. This isn't just some nice guy that came to earth to show us how to live. It isn't some nice guy who, who had some great pithy sayings that we can hang on the walls. No, 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 no. This is the God of the universe who took on human flesh to undo the curse that we were responsible for. And he took the curse for us. That's that baby lying in a manger. This is our cosmic God who is ruling us and saying, I care for you. I provided my son so that I could call you my son, my daughter, and bring you in. And that's the third point here we see is that God not only cares, he provides. Thousands of years, countless generations long to see the fulfillment and we stand on the other side of that fulfillment. We benefit from what occurs and we've been given, Paul says, the Holy Spirit of his son to dwell in us. Galatians 5.16, as Paul is telling them, you don't live by the law now. You've been free. You live by the Spirit. And he says in Galatians 5, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In fact, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and on he goes. These should be foreign to a believer. He says, because the fruit of the Spirit, and notice the Spirit's fruit, not ours, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. It's not just that he, he saw fit to undo the curse. It's not so fit that he, he allowed us to call him Abba. But he's given us the dwelling of the Spirit so that we can live in righteousness. And we can fulfill what he has designed for his people. It doesn't just end there either. In Ephesians 1, we see that through the Holy Spirit we have a promise of eternal life. Ephesians 1, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we require, or until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. We've seen the present, we've seen the past, and you see the one yet to come. 
And what a day it will be, right? When we stand with those who've gone before us to sing praises to the one who's overturned the curse, the promised one of Genesis 3, the one who has been brought forth as a son born of a woman. So as we look to Bethlehem, when we gaze upon that sweet baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, the major scene should remind us God superintends, he cares, and he provides. Oh, come, let us adore him. Father, we come to you and we marvel at your grace. How you have orchestrated events, have you moved through time, through people, to bring us to the fullness of time, the promise that you, the one that we have longed to see born there in Bethlehem. No wonder the angel declared glory to God in the highest. No wonder the shepherds stood in awe and magi brought gifts worthy of a king later to exalt this one. Simeon, the priest who held baby Jesus at the temple said, this is the one that I have longed to see. You have answered my prayer. I am beholding the salvation of humanity, the one who would overturn the curse. And Lord, we rejoice. We live in a world, Lord, we must confess that uh, is growing weary. <laughs> There's personal struggles many are facing. Perhaps it's marital. Perhaps it's situation at work. Lord, when we start to doubt your hand of control in our lives, your goodness, may we not forget what occurred back at Bethlehem and how you have orchestrated the events to bring us to this glorious moment. It's in your son's name, the one born of a woman who was born under the law, our Savior Jesus, we pray.